Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, the newsletter and podcast that seeks to bring the truth of Christ crucified from Scripture to every aspect of our lives as Christians. And in this week's edition, which is the first free public kind of edition for the year, I'm going to be speaking with our old friend Philip Jensen. It's been quite a while since I've sat down and had a really good chat with Philip. And as per usual, when I did so, the conversation roamed far and wide over all kinds of things, although I particularly wanted to speak to him and ask him questions about evangelism, because I know he's been thinking about that quite a bit recently, about evangelism and the gospel. Now, I sometimes do these interviews remotely using Squadcast or some similar kind of software, but this time I actually went over to Philip's place and sat down around his kitchen table with a cup of tea and had a chat with him. Uh, and as a result, you would have thought that would mean that the quality of the audio would be better. But at a few points, it's not for some reason that I'm not entirely certain of, especially my audio isn't great. I think Philip's is fine, which is the main thing. So I do apologize that the audio is not quite as good as normal. All the same, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Philip Jensen. So there's all kinds of things I was going to talk to you about today, but you just were mentioning before that you started on another book. I've only just finished editing that confounded Holy Spirit. Book. <laughs> it was about 47 million words long. But Yeah, well, that was the problem. It stopped me doing some of the other writing I've wanted to do for some time, just to finish that. But uh, I'm now writing a book on evangelism. Why do we need a book? I suppose it's why do we need a book on evangelism, but why do we need a book on evangelism? Well, the book that's been a great help to people is Chapo's Know and Tell the Gospel. But a generation's risen up who's never heard of Chapo, and they don't turn up for his book. People read books that are current rather than necessarily best. So I think we just need another book that is currently teaching people about evangelism, encouraging them to do it. Hmm. You got any ideas yet? Have you got an outline or something yeah. in your head? Or? Yes. Uh, part one is on the no, on the who, why, what, when kind of how do you evangelize, who evangelizes, why do you evangelize that? Part two, then works through the, the gospel itself. Uh, I'm going to use two ways to live as the summary. Um, just going through the gospel, showing the categorics of it rather than the apologetics of it. Because I'm, I think in our evangelism we are too defensive and not... Uh, what's the alternative word for defensive that's nice? Uh, you positive? Know, um, positive. <laughs> uh, well, it's too much... We're not telling the, the world that the world is wrong. But if the end point you want to ask people to repent, you've actually got to point out what's wrong with your life that you need to repent. And so it's, it's showing the implications of creation and rebellion and, and, and uh, judgment in terms of how the world is operating in blindness and ignorance and not understanding. So it's the, it's the accusation of the world from the gospel. And then the third part is about the spiritual nature of evangelism because it's not a, it's not here are the techniques, here is a, it's about prayer. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit in changing people's lives. It's about our, our need to beg God for mercy um, that uh, is really required. So, you know, the what, who, where, why, when, then what we need to say against the world and then how God will use our endeavours. Because we need to be more encouraged, I think, that this is not an impossible task because we have God doing the task. You know? 
The Holy Spirit in the end is the evangelist, but I, I don't want to tell you too much about that because I want you to read the book of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> coming, coming soon, or coming in a few months' time after yeah. it's all been edited finally and fixed up. Um, it's interesting, so you're saying there's a, it's almost like part two is if repentance is a turning from and a turning to, what are you turning from? Yes, that's right. From idols to the yeah. true and living God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, idolatry, you think how the Bible treats idolatry, it really says that it's, it's, it's foolishness, it's, it's an absurdity to worship things that are less than yourself as if they are God is just an absurdity and likewise uh, the the fool says in his heart there is no god but we say oh the most educated wise sensible people in all the universe are saying there is no god and we've got to defend their accusations whereas now the fool of psalm 14 and psalm 53 is a moral fool but then that's the point it's the nature of folly. Yes. I don't know if you ever read that book, uh, The Intellectuals by... Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson. Mm. Right? It just shows person after person of these great famous intellectuals. Their own personal life explains a lot of the kinds of arguments that they came with. And their own personal lives were all shot to pieces. It's like when people pay attention to the actors and actresses of Hollywood and, and try and learn about how to live from people whose lives are manifestly out of control. And hmm. getting marriage advice from a Hollywood actor would be about as stupid as you could go, I would think. Well, but them lecturing you about morality, you know, just ah. after they've left rehab and just after all the other <laughs> catastrophes of their own moral existence. Exactly. It's interesting what you were saying about the kind of accusatory... We're trying to find the right word. We didn't want to say aggressive or no. critical. Positive is not quite right because you're not trying to be glowing about the world no. you're trying to you're trying to expose the yeah. folly of the world in the kind yeah. of Acts 17 way that Paul does and mm. the way that other yeah. kinds of, of New well, Testament preachers do what I was going to ask you was though how do you do that in a way that doesn't come across as the nasty party or as a uh, negative unattractive kind of presentation well personally you do it's simple because personally, it's so easy to love people. I believe it's so easy to love people. And in the context of your genuine care and concern and love for them, the negative things that you say are part of that expression of love. But media-wise and in a book, it's much harder to do. I am trying to emphasize the thing that connects us with people in the world. Is, is not culture studies, etc. The thing that connects us is creation. You know, we're humans. Uh, we have babies. We are in love. We live in a magnificent creation. And so try and say the positive things that are part of the way in which God has made us and to which we by and large can function. I mean, you ponder a city like Sydney, the complexities involved of getting x million people living together working together with relative peace harmony and quiet i mean the media keeps telling us about there's a murder last night here or a murder there but there were three or four million people who didn't murder each other last night <laughs> I mean, we we it all works as a city and that's because of the cleverness of the humans created in the image of god 
And so you've got to say that bit. <laughs> but in a hypersensitive age, doesn't matter how hard you try, as soon as you say, yeah, but we're all liars. <laughs> There's an offensiveness about that truth. It's offensive. Mm. Are you saying then that in a way, if we get too apologetic about the gospel or too defensive, we don't expose people to that offensive truth about themselves? And yeah, absolutely. In fact, I looked at apologia in the New Testament. It's never used of intellectual defence. It's used of, it's, oh, I've forgotten, 18 times, something like that. It's always used of what you say when you're dragged in front of the court. <laughs> it's it's defence. It's Paul making his defence before. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or Festus or Festus Agrippa or people like that. That's when you use the word. The closest you come to is 1 Peter 3 about giving the defence for the hope that lies within you. But that's in the context of being accused of being a immoral and being dragged off and persecuted. So it's always in the persecution case. Uh, and categoria is used almost twice as often as apologia, but hardly anybody talks about our categoric of the world. But the, the good word, which we don't know how to translate, isn't it, is, is the one in John 16 about the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And in a sense, while I need to point out what's wrong with the world, it's the Holy Spirit who does that work of conviction. But I think the word, how to translate that is expose. You do an expose of the world. And ICAC, I don't know how far you, uh, painful truth and the like go, ICAC is the New South Wales... Independent Commission Against Corruption. Well done, thank you. And they have no power to put anybody in prison. Uh, they have power to force you to um, appear before them and uh, um, answer questions, from which then the prosecutor might take you off to court some other time in another context. All they are doing is exposing corruption. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to ICAC the world. <laughs> Actually, help the world to see the corruption of the world's own heart. Well, I preached one time when we were preaching at, uh, um, in Clancy, I was. And uh, a woman had brought along her brother uh, to hear. And I've forgotten what I was preaching on. I can't remember now. But it was the gospel. It was an evangelistic evening. And the brother afterwards was really cranky because he accused his sister of having told me about some of his problems that I had addressed when in fact I didn't even know he was there let alone having heard any of his problems now you got to think that's the work of the Holy Spirit taking the word of man to be the word of God and he is What's the phrase? Kicking against the goats. You know, he's being prompted. So as part of this book on evangelism, you're going to be talking about what the gospel actually is, the gospel mm. that we preach. And you say you're going to be using two ways to live as your sort of summary or framework, which mm. is a convenient segue to one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, good. Which, with this new version of Two Ways to Live, and we've talked about this before and written about it and so on and some of the changes, one of the fascinating things you said at one point as we were talking about it was 
one of the things you like about Two Ways to Live and that it's managed to successfully convey is the sense in which the resurrection of Jesus, the crucified Jesus as the Christ, is the climax and kind of nutshell or centerpiece of the gospel. And it just struck me that most people don't think of it that way. Most, most of us would probably say the cross is the mm. centre and the nutshell and the climax of the gospel mm. and the resurrection is kind of like the denouement or the wrapping mm. up or the kind of wrapping up all the loose ends. So what do you say that the resurrection is the climax of the gospel? What do you mean by that? I think there's two things in two ways to live and let you hint to that you should ask the other one later. That, that, that is distinctively theologically important. One is the resurrection. I think that's the key one you mentioned. Uh, the other is creation, which again most people don't see as part of the gospel. It, it came to us really, um, I say us because it was a community coming to. I mean it's seen in that little book Move In for Action, which was a Sydney Anglican Diocesan Committee investigating evangelism in the late 1960s, early 70s, I can't remember when that when you actually analyse the New Testament and its gospel preaching, it nearly always is on the resurrection. I think in the book of Acts it always is on the resurrection. And what is interesting in the book of Acts, it's never on the atoning work of the, of the cross. Uh, Luke knows about the atoning work of the cross because Paul speaks about it in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. It's not as if it's a theologically unknown thing. It's just that's not what they preached when they were speaking to the Jews in the synagogues or the Gentiles in the synagogues or the out-and-out Gentiles um, in Athens or Lystra. But they always preached the resurrection. Now, that's, that's slightly astonishing when you first see it because, yeah, most gospel preaching of the last... I don't know, my lifetime, shall I say, has been about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, which I believe, and I'm saying the New Testament believes. But then the resurrection is, oh, and by the way, he's still not dead, he's alive. It has no theological place. It's just a kind of an end point um, somehow. But that's not how it was in the New Testament. And as you explore the word gospel, the word gospel is, is the great declaration. And the great declaration is that Jesus is king, which explains why when in the gospels they preach Jesus, Jesus uh, preaches the gospel, it's all about the kingdom of God. It's not about the crucifixion there either. And so you know, the opening gospel reference is Jesus in Mark 1 14 15 the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel it's about the coming of the kingdom and with the resurrection of Jesus the kingdom of Jesus the kingdom of our Lord has arrived and so that's the announcement the king has come when you come to the announcement the king has come you find out that the way he came was by conquering the enemy and he conquered the enemy by his death and resurrection. Not that I want to replace penal substitutionary atonement with Christus Victor, but Christus Victor is there. It's, not, it's just not the alternative to penal sub. How did he conquer the enemy? 
well, by paying the penalty for us and turning aside God's wrath, so that the outcome is you can preach to those who repent and acknowledge the king, don't worry, you'll be forgiven. You'll be pardoned. Because the way he became king was by his atoning death and and resurrection. So, But resurrection is a key element to it. And then there are other verses on the way through that you start... Once, once you, once you tip to it, you start noticing things. The therefore in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, you know, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that above every name. Or uh, the end of Romans 4, where you've got the same Greek construction each time, dear, uh, and the uh, accusative, where it says that he was put to death for our sins and rose for, for our justification. Well, it's because of. He was put to death because of our sins. He was raised because of our justification that he has won in his death, you see. And so, and then you get the gospel of God, which is a very strong phrase, in Romans 1. 1 to 4. One, uh, yeah. And although Romans is going to really be the great exposition of propitiatory redemption by Jesus, it starts off without any reference to his atoning work. It starts off about being raised um, as the Son of God uh, by his resurrection. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the Holy Spirit yeah. through his resurrection. And so uh, even in, in is it 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, where it says, you know, remember my gospel about Jesus as Son of David and risen from, from the, the dead. dead. That, these are two points summary of my gospel. We don't preach Jesus, son of David, except at Christmas time when no one knows what we're talking about. But resurrection of dead. That, that's so. I think we do though, because I think son of David is the king, the yep. Christ, um, risen from the dead, yep. the, the resurrected king who died. It's it's why Christ crucified in in one Corinthians is Paul's gospel. I, I didn't preach anything else except Christ crucified. The one who is crucified is now the yeah, that's right. living, ruling, reigning yeah, Christ. That's right. That's right. And, and even you know one Corinthians fifteen where he says you know I preach first importance that Christ died uh, for our sins according, according to the scriptures, scriptures and rose, <laughs> and then the rest of the chapter is about the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, because you missed out and was buried. And was buried, yes. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, because it, it really is about the resurrection. Now, not at all meaning that the atoning work of the Lord in his death on the cross is an irrelevance. It's, it is absolutely fundamental to his resurrection. Without it, there would be no resurrection. And so that's why later in the chapter he will say, if Christ has been risen from the dead... We are still in our sins <laughs> because it's the two go hand in hand. But the thing you say to the outsider first is resurrection. The thing that you then say is forgiveness through the, through the death. It would seem is the pattern the New Testament uses. It's like that verse in Acts 2 when Peter gets to the climax of his sermon. And he says, therefore, let all Israel know that... Yeah. God has made him both Lord and Christ, and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah. And then they're cut to the heart, and what can we do? 
repent. Yes. Repent and be forgiven. Yeah. So it's interesting. So that in two ways to live, you get to the resurrection at point five of the six points. It's kind of like the climax, and mm. point six is the response. Yes. And in this new edition, we've we've put the offer of forgiveness of sins into point five, into the resurrection mm. box mm. for this reason to mm. kind of capture the sense that we've now everything's been said that must be said. We un we've understood the death of Jesus because we've understood the judgment of God, because we've understood sin, because we've understood creation. And then you get to the climax and it all wraps up in the resurrection and that's kind of where the gospel hmm. offer is. Yes. Uh, Luke 24, you know, in the upper room where he's, he's speaking to the disciples in his resurrection, see, he talks about it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins be preached to all nations, etc. I think most of our community's evangelism in the last in my lifetime has been Christ suffered for your sins and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be all preached to all nations. You'd leave out the resurrection phrase, whereas the resurrection is the effective uh, uh, solution, the effective consequence of him dying for our sins, which enables repentance and forgiveness now to be preached to all nations. It's I'd go further. I'd say the gospel I've heard for most of my lifetime in evangelical churches is he died for our sins and that you can be forgiven and receive eternal life through that atonement. Mm. Virtually full stop. Yeah. And so repent is often not there. Yes. Uh, the number of times I've been sent as Matthias yes. Media Editor, sent gospel presentations, gospel tracts that people have written that they're wanting us to publish. Yes. And they have the cross. They might mention briefly the resurrection. They talk about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Yes. But the response of repentance is often... Not there. Often not there. Bizarrely right. not there. Yeah. Yeah. When it's the, it's the thing that they're calling for all the time. Yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, why is that so? It can be lots of reasons. One is we don't like to say anything negative to people about their lives. Uh, another is that that's the challenge that makes it difficult to, to be able to say to people. And another can be that we, we're so committed to the idea the gospel is good news rather than great news that we, 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 we don't want to say anything that has a negative element to it at all. We just want to tell the good news is you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You know, there's a whole set of reasons why repent is not a very strong term. And if you don't really talk about Jesus as the risen king, as being the central, mm. then there's nobody to repent. There's no impress towards no, repentance. That's it's, right. That's if he's true. the king, then I need to bow to him. If I don't happen to mention that, then repentance and is And if not there's no judgment. <laughs> yeah. I've spent many, many happy years at Katuma Convention. Uh, and I was a young fellow and I was involved in the council there uh, and there were a lot of really great old men of evangelicalism in Sydney uh, who shared with me lots of stories and episodes of life. One of the ones that they, I heard them say more than once and they said it as a group that through the 30s, 40s, 50s a whole range of famous evangelists came to Sydney. Billy Graham was just the end one. Uh, but, you know, there was Hiram Appleby. There was all kinds of all kinds of people. And they said the one who had the smallest number of converts but the highest rate of retention 
was W.P. Nicholson, the great Irish evangelist. And so not many people got converted, but the people who got converted were really converted. Uh, the jungle doctor, um, Paul, Paul White. White, was one of them. Um, and one of the distinctive things of W.P. Nicholson's evangelism was he used to ask for repentance and restitution. So he... He, he preached for real repentance. If you really are repentant, well then go and pay back what you've done. Go. <laughs> he, he preached restitution, which limited the number of people who signed the decision cards, but those who did, did. <laughs> Just... One of the things I've always really liked about Two Ways to Live, and as I've read about the gospel and controversies about the gospel over the last 25 or 30 years, I think one of the areas in which it gets the this balance right is that there's been this fight between people there are sort of forgiveness and cross and penal substitution people and there are resurrection kingdom people and are almost like there are two gospels you've got a yeah. kingdom gospel yeah. which is all about the kind of renovation of the world and it kind of becomes a an atonement less mm -hmm. crossless kind of gospel yep. or you have the and in many sense many good brothers who don't want to go there are therefore a little bit mm. reluctant to give the resurrection too much play in case mm. it becomes this kind of kingdom gospel. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Arminianism too, which is you can have Jesus as your saviour and then some other time have a second kind of blessing of his lordship. Yeah. Whereas the only way he saves you is by being your lord. Uh, and you've got to keep the two things together. Mm. The other thing about Two Ways to Live, I know you mentioned to me earlier was it talks about creation and it goes yep. back to creation and hardly any gospel presentations do that. What? No, 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 they don't. And, and hardly any in the New Testament do either. Perhaps Adam it's... is hardly mentioned in the Old Testament once you get past chapter 1 or 2. Um, I think he, I've not to check this out, but I think he's mentioned more often in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. Um, Adam uh, and creation uh, is the, the, the backdrop to everything happens in the selection of Abraham and the looking forward of the history of Israel. And it's a part that I think the Jews didn't quarrel about. The Sadducees, the Pharisees fought over the, um, the, the resurrection and over angels and over prophets. They didn't fight over creation. That was just a given and an accepted. And so there was no reason for Paul to particularly preach in the synagogues about creation or for Jesus to preach about creation. That was, and I think sin was an accepted concept within their framework too, which again meant you didn't have to mention it. However, it is striking that when he goes to Lystra and he's talking to pagans, um, and when he goes to Athens and he's talking to idolaters, then the one God who is the creator of all and to whom we are answerable and for whom worshipping men in Lystra, worshipping by idols in uh, Acts 17, is totally inappropriate, um, is critical to understanding their situation and need of forgiveness and the need of the Christ. Hmm. Um, and that, I think, is true in our context, in one sense, previous generations again accepted creation. But because of this great fight over evolution and 
and uh, intelligent design where atheists use evolution to argue against God's existence and Christians use intelligent design to argue for God's existence and neither are listening to each other at all. The, the opposite of creation is not evolution. The opposite of creation is accidentalism. It's, it's naturalistic materialism. It's atheism is the opposite of creation in that regard. That's why the Christians are right in feeling that evolution is on the side of the atheists because the atheists use evolution. But we mustn't get ourselves hung up with the mechanisms like that. It's, it's the, the issue is accidentalism as opposed to purposeful, personal creation. You get rid of creation and the creator, you then change the doctrine of sin. Because sin is no longer humans' rebellion against their creator. Sin now becomes breaking rules and regulations. And so instead of being outlaws, people who have placed themselves outside the law, uh, people who make their own laws as the essence of sin, we become lawbreakers uh, as the essence of sin. And so we then move to solve the problems by attending to the symptoms rather than attending to the disease. And if you've got a wrong diagnosis, just attending to symptoms, for example, you'll never solve the problem. You've got to look at the symptoms, adultery, murder, theft, false witness. You've got to look at the symptoms and find what diagnose what the disease is. And the disease is our rebellion against God, which means you can be a highly moral person and totally godless. Whereas the highly moral person doesn't feel like we are preaching to them because they are moral. And we're saying you've got to try harder and be good, which is not what we're saying, but that's what we're hearing. And so without a proper doctrine of creation, I don't think you get a proper doctrine of sin. Now, without a proper doctrine of sin, the reason for judgment seems weird. And then, I mean, why do you get sent to hell for eternity for telling lies or stealing in Woolworths? It seems disproportionate somehow. But that's because you're thinking just of the symptoms. You're not thinking of you have put yourself in total opposition to God. And that is why you've wanted existence without God, you'll get existence without God. God gives you what you asked for, so to speak. And then also, you don't understand how did Jesus dying on the cross actually pay for my sin? The concentration is all depersonalized, derelationalized, and symptomatic rather than disease-oriented. So we need to reintroduce creation thinking, worldview, into our understanding so that people will understand what our sin is, why God's judgment is, and how Jesus' death pays for it. I think it's very true. Um, I think in some of the presentations of sin that I see these days which focus on 
um, the problems we have, our lack of meaning, our lack of purpose, um, mm. the things that we want, the things that we see, et cetera, et cetera, all the different symptoms and problems we experience because of our rebellion against God. If you don't penetrate further down to the underlying problem, which is a rebellion against God, it's very hard to see then why death is God's judgment against yeah. us. And if you don't understand why death is God's judgment, why does this man dying a death mm. matter? The death of Jesus only really makes any sense if you understand why death and eternal death, eternal destruction, is mm. is God's judgment against sin. And it lacks the eschatology too, doesn't it? That is, in our new version, which which I like of it, where it talks about the damage we do, right? Because of our by our rebellion, we damage ourselves. We damage ourselves, each other, and the world. Yeah. People think that that is the final payment for sin. So therefore, that is what I need to address. You know, I, I, have you got a fulfilled life? Are you a satisfied if life? I can fix the damage. I can fix the damage. And so I've actually helped you. And so Jesus loves you and he's shown he loves you by his death and his resurrection of the dead. And, and so now turn back to him and you'll have a fulfilled, happy, satisfied life. And the eschatology of the gospel has just completely gone. So I think the creation background is an important one for our understanding. I can understand, though, why in a world in which understood creation and sin, that it was not necessary to spell it out every time. But that's true of the gospel generally. You don't have to say everything every time to preach the gospel faithfully and truthfully. If that's the case, why do we encourage people to learn this gospel outline if you don't need to say it? everything every time why why is it important or helpful to know it because when, when i say a little piece of the gospel i must make sure that that piece that i'm saying lines up with what went before and what goes after <laughs> otherwise i'll be saying that piece inaccurately i've got two illustrations now that i've been putting in this book and i don't know which one to use or both one is there's a straight line from creation to new creation, from, from the, God's plan for the beginning of the world and God's plan for the end of the world. And that straight line goes through rebellion, judgment, atonement, resurrection, repentance and faith. You know? uh, and so as I preach any bit like atonement, I've got to make sure that the way I'm saying it is consistent with that straight line. The other way I've said it for many years is truth is circular <laughs> and whatever little bit of the circle I'm saying must have the right curvature of arc that will imply the rest of the circle. But if I flatten out the arc a bit because I don't like some of the things, then I won't be able to preach the circle of truth accurately. So I don't have to say the whole circle the whole time. It's a, you know, Paul says I... I didn't withhold anything that was profitable from you in Acts 20. And then he also says, I declared the whole counsel of God. When I first read that, very many years ago, when I was even more stupid than I am now, uh, I thought that meant he preached from Genesis 1, 1 through to Revelation 20. You don't have to do that. To preach Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour is to preach the whole counsel of God. I just said it then. It's... the. The, the, the total picture, you can be really close and see every pixel, or you can be a long way away and just see the picture. But 
that's the whole council. So it means that as you're um, as you're just having a conversation, and you've very often in conversation, you this is this is true in preaching, and it's true in conversation. When you preach, you can't preach absolutely everything every yeah. time. And when you're in conversation with someone, you almost, it's almost never that neat. No, you're you're dropping yeah. in wherever the conversation happens to be. That's right. But if you know where the whole trajectory or that line of the gospel is going, and where the pieces fit together, you can hang the conversation on it. You can drop into it and drop out of it. Yeah, that's right. And you can pick up next week on a different topic and mention it to it. But it means yeah. when you are talking about rebellion or sin, you know what it is you're talking about and why, how it connects with what comes that's before right. and afterwards. Whereas if you haven't got the summary in your head, um, you don't know what to do with the piece of information you've got and how it ties into anything else. And this is important not just for evangelism, it's very important for our conversations and for witness. And I guess Two Ways to Live is known as a tool for evangelism. But having that map in your head is vital just for the Christian life because the Christian life is based on the gospel. It's, mm. it's a living out of the gospel. Yeah. And it's in that kind of sense, I mean, you've often said Two Ways to Live is a kind of catechism. Well, actually you should talk to my brother about it because his doctorate was on catechisms and I've never read it. Um, so I can't be sure, but during the Reformation in particular, uh, each of the main churches invented their catechisms, questions and answers back and forward to train the young people in the faith. And the Anglican Church, in our Book of Common Prayer, has a catechism. It's a, it's a, a classic Reformation catechism. Of course, the question within Anglicanism at the time of the Reformation were questions about the roles of the sacraments in relationship to the Gospel. And so, the catechism that I was taught when I was being confirmed to be an Anglican as a teenager had all these questions about uh, sacraments which were no longer really our questions. I mean, I accepted the catechism's view of the sacraments. It hadn't occurred to me to think of them any other way, really, because I wasn't a Roman Catholic, hadn't come from a Roman Catholic background, had not been trained in Roman Catholic thinking, so I was just learning about the sacraments. These, of course, are very important. Baptism is very at the heart of repentance and the Lord's Supper has got to do with our faith in the Lord's death on our behalf. So it's, it's not as if they're kind of totally peripheral to Christian thinking and understanding. But they're not really the heart of the gospel. Uh, the Apostle Paul and Peter and the rest don't go preaching about the nature of the effectual signs of baptism or the, the reception of the Lord Jesus in the Lord's Supper. They just, that's not how they evangelize. So it's not really the central truths of the gospel. And became more and more remote so that very few people that I know retained any knowledge much of the catechism after they were confirmed. It was just one of those things you learnt, many people not very well, uh, at the time of your confirmation, I was what, age 14 or something, and then it played virtually no part in thinking after that. Whereas once we devised two ways to live and started training people, I realised that it functioned as the memory 
structure of Christian theology because it, it, it was the memory structure of the gospel. Which is the centre of Christian theology. Yeah, and which therefore functions as the catechism. So, and the idea of knowing by heart what you believe is a very valuable thing to do, a very valuable exercise to do. And so it has effectively, for a generation or two now, replaced the catechism with a gospel catechism. I think the old catechisms were gospel catechisms too, but they were for the 17th, 16th century. Uh, whereas we're talking, I don't think for the 21st century, because I think we've devised it out of uh, New Testament evangelistic preaching. So I think it has a with all due modesty, a longer, a longer lifespan for us than sacramental theology, which, I mean, poor Cranmer and the crowd, they, they, they went to the stake for their view of the sacraments. But their view of the sacraments were their view of the gospel. And we thank God that they were willing to stand firm uh, on those views of the sacraments. That was, that was a a gospel persecution and martyrdom but when you read it today it seems slad a tad strange so what, this kind of twofold purpose that kind of emerged and like most good things emerged without realizing that that's what you were doing <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> the brilliance of hindsight exactly <laughs> exactly yes. we've kind of reflected out in, in the way we've revised all the training material so mm. that the new training materials that are coming out good so this year it's 2022 isn't it it is this year um one half of it, part one, will really be that catechistic kind of let's really learn the gospel off by heart. Let's dig down into it and really understand its logic and get the gospel really clearly in our minds and hearts. Um, think through its implications and also think through how it differs from the world. So some of that categoric kind of yep. stuff you talked about yep. is included in there as you think, how does the gospel differ from and critique the worldly way of thinking? So yep. the sort of part one does that and mm -hmm. that's its own thing. And then part two is, well, if I was then going to go and have a conversation with someone and start to actually share that gospel, how would I go about doing that? And so the old training course tried to do all that in one thing, and it was yeah. always a bit of a rush. So we've now divided that into learn the gospel and share the gospel. And so therefore, my new book on evangelism will be a very helpful little textbook. Indeed, the back of the study. all together. I can make it recommended reading. You just need, recommended to, reading, you need to get it. it done in time for me to put it in as recommended okay. reading. Okay, well, I'm, I'm halfway. Halfway on the first draft. Excellent. Well, my conversation with Philip sort of dribbled on for a bit longer and kind of got a bit distracted and uh, went all, even more all over the place than than, uh, than it already was. And so that might be a good place to stop. I hope you enjoyed that chat and that you were stimulated as I was in thinking about really what the gospel is and why the resurrection is so central to it and how that might influence the way we present the gospel to people. I'm currently, as you know, working on an evangelistic book based on two ways to live that leads up to and gets to the resurrection of Jesus as the climax of the gospel, as Two Ways to Live does in box five. And so I'm really interested to you know, think through how that works and what the gospel presentation should be like that reaches its zenith, as it were, as Jesus rises from the dead as the Lord and King of all. Uh, next week, I'll be sending out the next 
chapter or the next portion of a chapter I'm not sure whether I'll get the whole chapter finished or whether it'll be half a chapter given how long this one will be and I'll be sending that one out to everybody on the list so the next post you'll get is a free public post everyone will get that next week it'll be chapter four or the first half of chapter four of the two ways to live evangelistic book that I'm working on it's the chapter about the death of Jesus and so I hope you look forward to that to reading about at least part of what the death of Jesus is about in next week's painful truth Thanks once again for being here this week. If you've persevered to this long, I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.